IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, it's our Spring 2023 Preview. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, it's always spring where he lives in San Diego, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I'm not sure if you're referencing the fact that it actually snowed in Pasadena area last weekend in Los Angeles. Um, I mean, as opposed to New Yorkers, like, you know, when it snows in LA, we, you know, maybe just mention it and get on with our day. Well, but but, But but how far is Pasadena from you, though? That's like two hours, right? It's like two hours, but it's still L.A. I mean, you well, know. you're in San like, Diego, uh, though. It was probably 77 degrees the day it snowed. It was not. It was, it was like, uh, it was like 50 degrees and like heavy rainfall to the point where it said on the, on the highways, freeways, whatever, like, uh, you know, don't travel. And of course, you know, like to see that while you're on the freeway, you know, it's like, well, we. You could have told us all. You you could have told us before, but right now it's actually uh, raining in San Diego, uh, and I'm I'm kind of hoping like my uh, mic picks up some of it. You know, we'll get a nice kind of big thief Mount Erie kind of uh, ambience going on with this. Well, episode. I think you know people have been missing the squeaky chair lately. You know, this is the squeaky <laughs> chair was a fixture of IndieCast for our first what like fifty episodes at least <laughs> first two years uh, so they're looking for some ian cohen ambient noise like your your, your late career <laughs> your mid-career recordings have been way too clean we need to bring back some of the old school sound i just want to say 50 degrees and raining that's spring where i live so so yeah. as far as i'm so as like the worst weather you're getting is spring to me i just want to say it's snowing here right now uh there's about a foot of snow on the ground here still Jeez. uh so, you know, I, I have no sympathy for the Californians who had, like, snow for about five minutes and then it melted. Yeah, but we're not, like, equipped for this stuff. Like, when it rains, like, the streets flood and uh, people don't know how to drive. Like, when it snows in Minnesota, like, you – and I don't, like, I don't know if you've ever been to a house in Southern California when it's less than 50 degrees. It is multitudes colder than any place I've been to in the Midwest or the East Coast. So, it's all it's all about relativity. Like – you know, the good news is, I think in L.A., San Diego, we don't complain about it a hell of a lot. So, you know, you, you can't hate us that yeah, much. Yeah, you took a little shot at New Yorkers there. Of course. So you and I, we both had concert experiences this week that we want to banter about. Mm-hmm. Radically different musical experiences. I'll go first because I went to a show this week. I was invited by my buddy who works in radio, and I wanted to hang out with him, so I said yes, but I also went to the show because I wanted to talk about it on the podcast. I, I felt like this would be good content for us because the show was Muse. You never yes. turned down an opportunity to talk Muse on the pod. Yeah, so I've never seen Muse before. Have you seen Muse live? You know, I've probably caught a bit of them at one of the Coachellas I went to, but never, never like the Muse experience where like Matt Bellamy gets like magnets or whatever it is or lasers or what, you know, all the things that he plans to do. He's got like that kind of Elon Musk mind of a 14 year old thing going on. 
Yeah, it, it was a fascinating show, and it, it was just like a really fun night overall. Uh, because I, I love hanging out with my friend who's, who works in radio because he works at a big-time rock station here in Minneapolis, and it's actually like one of the like bigger rock stations in America because this is a market where people still listen to rock radio. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many markets there are like that, but like this is definitely an area where people still need to listen to local, uh, you know, they need to hear their Chili Peppers and <laughs> Five Finger Death Punch songs on the radio. Um, it's also fascinating for me hanging out with radio people because it just reminds you like where journalists and critics exist in the ecosystem of the music <laughs> business that like they don't care about journalists relative to radio at all. Like radio, I think journalists like to talk about how radio is irrelevant, but like radio people get the last laugh because it still is important in terms of bands breaking into the mainstream. Like there's still a lot of people that listen to radio out there Mm -hmm. and you can tell just because radio people get wined and dined in a way that journalists do not. Like (laughs) it just like when I, when I go with my friend to shows like we're getting backstage, you know, we're getting really good. He's just getting treated like a king at these places because they want to stay in his good graces. Um, also, I ended up. I was talking with a a person in the entourage here who also works in radio. We were talking about the band Falling in Reverse. Are you familiar with this band? Because this band is apparently <laughs> huge in rock radio. It's sort of like a combination of like the worst bands in the world. Like there's a little bit of Eminem, a little bit of Fall Out Boy, a little bit of like Avenged Sevenfold. It's sort of like a hip hop emo metal. Oh hybrid. yeah. I am uh, I, I'm familiar with this band only because if you go on like, you know, emo or like punk message boards or like, you know, you get glances at like alt press. Like this band is I don't know how big they are now, but like in 16, 17, let's call it. Like all I knew is that they had a frontman Ronnie Radke who was like canceled for se- like quasi canceled for several different reasons. I guess that hasn't, you know, stop falling in reverses like upward trajectory um but yeah this that like bands like falling in reverse and like radio they just occupy this pocket of consciousness that uh i don't like i'll see a lot of articles like where it's like yeah we need to get like uh you know more of like middle america like more of like you know the working class into rock music and like when we look at like you know what rock radio is actually playing it just makes me think of like the five figure death punch skillet tour that's coming up. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you're yeah. probably I mean, they, talking about falling in reverse or Avenged Sevenfold or Theory of a Dead Man. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is like the Heartland Rock of today. This is like what they're listening to in the Heartland of America. Just uh, again, I feel like I need to investigate this more because the like the little I've listened to it, it just sounds like everything I hate in one package. So maybe in some way it's, it's brilliant, you know, like Uh. it's so awful that it might be fantastic. But anyway, talking about muse, um, couple takeaways from the show. One, as you mentioned, there was like a lot of stage production. You had pyro going on, you had, uh, streamers going off, you know, you had confetti shooting in the air when Matthew Bellamy's singing about compliance, (laughs) you know, and, (laughs) You know, it has a very kind of Jordan Peterson-like vibe at times uh, in terms of the lyrics. Uh, but there was also, like, a video game element to the show. Like, there was a lot of things going on video screens um, where it'd be, like, 
this sort of very video game looking figure, sort of like a half man, half beast, half robot, getting into fights and like cutting people's heads off and stuff. And it just made me think like, oh yeah, I bet a lot of people listen to Muse when they're playing video games. So it would make sense to integrate that into the live experience. So I thought that was interesting. The other takeaway from this show was that Evanescence was the opening act. And uh, I didn't, I didn't, get, I didn't see the Evanescence set. I Aww. was, uh, we were at dinner, so we showed up late. Didn't see Evanescence, but it was a, it was a pretty big metalhead crowd at this show, and I, I and I feel like that's maybe where Muse is at this point. Like, they're not a metal band, although there's definitely like metal elements to what they do, especially live. Like they, they really leaned into like the riffage part of their music, <laughs> and occasionally like he would slip in like the riff from Back in Black at the end of a song. You mm. know, that kind of stuff. So I thought that was interesting. So video games and metalheads. I yeah. feel like that was the big take. Those were the big takeaways from my Muse live experience. Yeah, I mean, like when you hear about the economics of video games, like that's a pretty good audience to lock down. Because like you'll hear about like, you know, the, like, like the next like Call of Duty uh, you know, part of the series, like, oh, it made $500 million in its first weekend. Also, like, there's, like, metalheads, like, that I'm going to talk about in my show, but there's also, like, the Guitar Center-type metalheads, who I think that's also a very loyal audience to, uh, you know, win over. And I just think about, like, every time I go to Guitar Center or, like, look at Guitar World in the supermarket, and it's got, like, you know, a pit... Like, it's got Dimebag Daryl on the cover for, like, the 50th time, like, since he's been uh, dead. So, I mean, look, Muse, they're they're <laughs> they're dumb, but, like, they're not, like, uh, they have some degree of self-awareness. So, you know what? Like, I think they've gotten past the possibility of ever being seen as, like, the new Radiohead and have just kind of, um, I don't know, like, uh, picked up the people who, like, really do sort of like stopped listening to Radiohead in like 1995. Yeah. I mean, cause I think what they deliver is a live experience. That's akin to something like what Iron Maiden does. Yeah. You know, like there were, there were elements to their live show that reminded me of like of Maiden. So even if the music isn't always like metal, it is kind of like a metal arena rock experience, which that was an aspect I enjoyed of the show. Mm-hmm. I, I actually found myself wishing that they were dumb in a different kind of way. Like they're dumb in like the Jordan Peterson kind of way. Right. And and not dumb in like the fun kind of way. Because there's a disconnect between playing these big songs where you have like pyro going off and then he's singing about like government control. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I it's like I don't want that. Like can't you just sing about like getting <laughs> high and getting laid and stuff? I mean that you know that's what uh, I, I wish they were more like ACDC and not just playing ACDC riffs, but at any rate, yeah. Uh, so you went to a show that was like the opposite. It was quite the opposite. Although, like prior to the show, I did see like a bunch of like metal roadies like helping set up the stage. There was like a guy with like a Lemmy um, like type hat on with like a big handlebar mustache. But the show I went to was called the World War Tour, which you know would be an actually a good name for a Muse package tour. Oh yeah, and um, it was a. I want to call it a hardcore show, but it like kind of embodied like the the margins of this uh, realm because the first bat the first act that played was this SoundCloud rapper called Trip Jones, but otherwise it was headlined by Show Me the Body, which is 
one of those bands like Injury Reserve, let's say, who's like on like a major label for the most part, like Loma Vista, like they're on, they're label mates with like Spoon. Um, and they've accumulated a pretty big audience with like out, you know, just pretty organically. Like you, you, you know, you hear about them every now and again, but then you realize, oh shit, they're like playing a 1200 cap room in my city. There was also um, Zulu, who I'm going to talk about later, a black power violence band from LA. Scowl, which is like a melodic uh, hardcore band that opened for Limp Biscuit recently. And uh, Jesus Peace, who put out a record in 2018 that was like on Southern Lord, but the bassist plays with nothing. And they got an album coming out in April that I'm sure I'm going to talk about. And so all of these bands are like real good exemplars of like where hardcore is right now. I talked to them before the show and they've all mentioned how, um, you know, turnstile has kind of changed the game for them. Um, and the cool thing about this gig is that um, they're playing like 10, th- like or a thousand cap shows in like Chicago and LA and whatnot. But like in San Diego, they played like a 300 capacity venue. So um, look, I'm standing towards the back Um and I've watched the video. Go watch Jesus Pieces. This is hardcore um, performance. Like you'll, you either think it's the coolest shit you've ever seen, or like never want to listen to hardcore again. But what I loved about this show is that like it was like a five band bill, and it was packed the entire time. The energy was super high, and like it's just a really super diverse crowd on all fronts. Like Pete, you get like the like the 55 year old guy wearing like, you know, like the studded jacket and the guy in a national hoodie. Um, and it just kind of like goes to show that, um, even if like, you know, there hasn't been like a turnstile bump for this scene, like the way I anticipated, like people are, you're still mostly reading about hardcore from like the one guy at each publication who covers it. Um, but there's always going to be, like, people who are up for, like, aggressive music of all types. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I was just, like, I felt very good about the state of, like, uh, hardcore music after this show. But um, before, but before like, I go on, like, when we're talking about, like, the metal guys, this is what my real takeaway was. Because this was at the Metal Club and they run televised ads for upcoming shows. So you get to see like this band called Visions of Atlantis who are like Evanescence. Except all their songs are about pirates. They dress up in like pirate costumes. And they play huge festivals too. Like Ugly Kid Joe is touring again. LA Guns is touring again. Cold is doing like an anniversary show for like the album that doesn't have the radio hits on it. And so like you're saying, like, you know, in the same way, like I would love to get the rock radio, your rock radio friend on this episode. Like that might be where I break down our no guest, uh, our guest stars policy. But well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just goes to show that there's such a vast universe of music out there that people respond to that maybe isn't talked about you know, by critics. It, I, I, and I'm always fascinated by that, by that gap. Uh, I, I want to circle back to something you were saying about like the turnstile bump yeah, and how you feel like it hasn't happened in the way that you expected. But like from the show that you just described, I would say that it has happened hmm. that if a, if a five band bill is drawing 1200 people, that seems impressive to me. And I, I just wonder like, what's the expectation hmm. here? For this music that I think is designed to not be mainstream. 
You know, like most of these bands, just by virtue of like the kind of music that they play, they're not going to be at the center of culture. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that they're supposed to be. You know, so I, I just wonder like what... Because you said like, well, there's one person at each publication that covers this stuff, but like that's a lot. That's still like a lot of coverage to me. I mean, isn't it? Because because again, there's because there's like a lot of music that, that's not talked about at all, and I, I just true. wonder like like what is the adequate amount of success or coverage for this? Because I because to me, I think it is. I think it's doing great, and I don't know what much because it's not going to take over no. indie music it's no. not going you know the reason why turnstile is broken through is because they don't sound like a hardcore band to like the average person off the street like you can you can get into that band and you not know anything about punk music or hardcore or whatever you know you can just hear them on the radio and feel like that's a cool song whereas like a lot of other bands in that scene i think you have to be invested in the music to like even know what the difference like you listed all these sort of sub genres of, of of hardcore that like to the average person they're not going to know what that is unless they listen to a lot of hardcore music mm-hmm. otherwise it just sounds like hardcore it just sounds like a person screaming a heavy riff and like a really fast beat yeah you know well i i guess as far as like and also this is just like very selfish of me because you know like on at, I would. I just want to read like intelligent discourse on hardcore, which I know sound can sound like an oxymoron, but like in the same way that like I see, you know, pretty like I can see like any given day, like a couple people writing about like jazz or like three hour ambient albums. You know, I I I basically want to feel like oh, I can read about this without having to write about it myself. It's it's all very selfish and like very um, petty. I suppose in a way, but um, yeah, but I guess there, maybe I mean, that's I, sort of the point. I mean, I feel like there's a pretty vibrant convert. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm very uh, you know, like I'm not a part of that at all. But like, even I can see conversations online about like bands like this, like fairly often. Mm. Um, so I so again, I don't know. Like, there's always like this weird thing I feel like in punk scenes, like where people get upset when pu- mainstream <laughs> publications don't cover it, and when they but do then, cover it as well. <laughs> yeah, and when they do cover it, it's not right. Yeah. And I just feel like, isn't the point of being in a hardcore band is that you're not a part of the mainstream? That like you have your you have like a counterculture, and that you like don't want to be part of like the the main culture. Like, why would you want to be accepted by them? I mean. It's, I I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I just feel like that's part of the point of being in that scene is that you like you don't want to be a part of like whatever's going on in the center of the world. Yeah, I mean it's it's a completely selfish uh, desire of myself because like right now I'm like with this this Zulu album I'm like man am I gonna have to be like the 43 year old white guy writing about this like <laughs> L.A. Black Power Violence album because no one else is. Hopefully not. But yeah, that's that's just my little spiel. I would. But let's let's get back to Ugly Kid Joe now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's covering Ugly Kid Joe? Like, there's no Ugly Kid Joe discourse. I'm not seeing any uh, anniversary pieces on America's <laughs> Least Wanted. That was that the yeah. one with the cats in the cradle. Co- like, I know there was like an uh, there was like an original Ugly Kid Joe album, and then they reissued it or something like that. I I don't know. I my 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 memory of the Ugly Kid Joe lore is lacking. I cannot believe we're having an Ugly Kid Joe discourse and I did not come adequately prepared. 
Well, yeah, there's everything about you. Yep. Neighbor. Their, like, that was of- that was the song that got me to buy the tape of America's Least Wanted. So Cats in the Cradle is on America's Least Wanted. Tight. And uh, yeah, and I think it was added later because it looks like there were four singles from this album <laughs> in 1992. And then Cats in the Cradle drops like six months later mm. in March 20- March 25th, 1993. So we are coming up on the 30th anniversary of Cats in the Cradle. So if we need a topic in March, I mean, that might be what we end up talking we, about. We damn near might need it. I, I, I've, I remember this album like very vividly. I remember like Cats in the Cradle had like a really dark and serious Matt Mahurin video. Like it was uh, Rooster or Jeremy. Right. Um, yeah, Everything About You's on it. Uh, Busy Bee, I remember that. That was like a power ballad. Uh, fascinating text. We will, we will definitely actually, there were seven singles from this album. I know. I know. It's like, uh, it's like born in the USA or thriller, uh, just rolling out singles one after another. Yeah. I like that ugly kid Joe decided at some point, you know, we're known as like sort of a joke metal band, but we are also concerned about father son relationships. So there are definitely message that there are definitely message songs on this record as well. Like, you know, about like, Hey man, what's going on in this world? You know, like I, like, like it's like a ghetto boys album. Like I remember like they'd have like 12 songs that are just like the most vulgar content. And then the one song at the end, it's like, Hey man, what's going on in the world today? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's this, this the last single was Goddamn Devil. <laughs> so I wonder what that was about. The devil probably. Not, I don't remember that song. I it's like seven singles. I don't know any of these other you, you know the song Neighbor? I don't know. Oh yeah, song. I know that. I remember seeing that on MTV and like having my mom drive me to Sam Goody so I could pick up the cassette. Like I uh, I remember Neighbor. It's like about being a shitty neighbor. <laughs> Naturally. Uh, well, All Music Guide gave it four and a half stars. What? <laughs> all, mu- all Music Guide is like a, that's a wild card sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you'll see like the four and a half star review and it'll just talk about how shitty it is. Like it's yeah. just like completely mismatched. It's like they hate all the Bright Eyes albums. I don't know if you've noticed that, but like All Music Guide has a big bias against Bri- uh, Bright Eyes. And Los Campesinos. Yo, yeah. Connor Oberst, any Connor Oberst project. Because All Music Guide is usually like pretty uh, generous. Yeah. You know, hence four and a half stars for Ugly Kid Joe's America's Least Wanted. But then occasionally they have these like weird vendettas against certain artists. Well, and, it like, ap- Bright Eyes is one of them. It appears that it's two stars for I'm Wide Awake It's Morning, which, you know what? Shout to uh, Steve Earlwine. I agree with you on that one. Otherwise, it seems like they're pretty on point with this Bright Eyes catalog. Really? Yeah. Four and a half for uh, Fevers and Mirrors and Lifted. Uh, four and a half for letting off the happiness. Otherwise, digital ash and uh, digital ash and I'm wide awake. Two stars. Casadega gets four. So you know what they they gave a little shout out to you. All right. Well, let's get to our mailbag here. Uh, I did not expect the ugly kid Joe tangent there. The, the, this is gonna make the meat <laughs> possibly late because we started talking about how America's least wanted has seven singles. Maybe it's what people want, though. I feel like our live conversation last week yeah. got got good feedback. There were a lot of people who said, I really enjoyed that. So I think people want us to talk about shitty 90s bands. Yeah, I need to show. know what your rock radio friend thinks about Ugly Kid Joe. 
Like, are they still well, like, are they still like putting out like uh, songs that get like some spins, uh, you know, alongside the uh, the alter bridges of the world? Oh man, I don't know if they. I I would be surprised if they play ugly ugly kid Joe. Like if <laughs> if, if you know that's classic rock now. Different playing, different format. <laughs> I mean, and if they did, would they play everything about you, or would it be Cats in the Cradle? Uh, I hope it'd be everything about you. I'd rather hear that. Yeah. Than the Cats in the Cradle <laughs> cover, which is, I mean, like what? I, I just love the thought process. I want to know what the thought process was there with Ugly Kid Joe. <laughs> And how, I mean, it seems like that was like a gambit to like revive that album. Yeah. You know? It's like the Mrs. Robinson with like the lemon heads, how they stuck that <laughs> on the end of uh, It's can, a Shame About Ray. Which I can understand that one because that's like an upbeat song. It's fun. Cats in the Cradle. Like, was that like some A&R guy who's like, I was listening to this uh, Harry Chapin song. From, and I thought, Ugly Kid Joe, they got to do this one. <laughs> I don't know. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, our letter this week uh, comes from Ryan and Charlotte. And this is like some housekeeping mm-hmm. here because it's kind of a fact check for our live conversation last week. And it's, I knew that this, I knew that this was correct, like what he's going to say in this letter, but we didn't, we didn't say it. In our conversation. Anyway, let's just read the letter and then we'll talk about it. Do you want to read this? Yeah, I do. So um, this comes from uh, Ryan and Charlotte who says, Hey, fellas, enjoy the podcast as always and the conversation about the Bonkers live story, but had to respond to references to the replacement lead singer as Charlotte Hornets owner, George Shin's son. As any Charlatan? Charlatan? I don't know, would happily tell you we despise, quote, former owner George Shin for holding the city hostage for a new arena and then bouncing the original team we loved to New Orleans when he didn't get his way. Then Shin had to sell the franchise back to the NBA for pennies a decade ago, probably losing out on a cool couple billion dollars today's in today's valuation. But now we're going down a P.J. Brown-esque, remember some guy's rabbit hole that, G- that Ian enjoys so much, shout out to Kelly Trapuca and such. I think all IndieCast listeners will enjoy that the current Charlotte's Hornets owner is none other than the character reference in the MJ Lenderman song, Hangover Game. Keep up the yes. great work, Ryan and Charlotte. So again, to review, we were talking <laughs> about the bonkers Rolling Stone story about live last week. And you and I both learned from that story that George uh, Shin's son, the former owner of the Charlotte Horners, Hornets, was briefly the lead singer of live. Correct. Like Ed Kowalczyk left. Then Christian, Sh- Christian, call him Little Shin, came in, <laughs> and then he left. And then Kowalczyk came back in, and then he fired the rest of the band. <laughs> uh, but uh, Ryan is right. Michael Jordan yes. is the current owner of the Charlotte Hornets. We didn't say that in our conversation. I remember while we were talking about that, thinking, "Oh, Michael Jordan is the current owner of, of the Hornets," but. You know, I was just so into talking about con men and fiber optics companies and, uh, uh, you know, the ABN awards and like all the twists and turns of that Rolling Stone thing. So appreciate that, Ryan. You know, we like to be accurate here on IndyCast. So thank you for uh, fact checking us on that. And I also sometimes, honestly, even as an NBA fan, forget the Charlotte Hornets exist. You know, like this, that is just a fucking 
black hole of a franchise right now, man. Like, I just hope they get Wembenaya, man, because, like, LaMelo Ball, like, his other ankle is fucked up. Like, you know, your best player is probably Gordon Hayward. It, it's dark times in Charlotte. But, um, yeah, like, uh, as far as, as just the, as far as, like, weird owner stuff in music, like, you know, George Shin way behind JD in the straight shot and, you know, nowhere near the, uh, the peak of owner, uh, you know, weird music stuff, which it, we need to have like a Jim Ursay episode. Cause this guy just like, he's, he's like worth like nine figures and he just gets his, spends his money getting hammered and buying Pink Floyd's like old guitars at auction. That guy kind of <laughs> rocks. So I, I'm just looking up, I was trying to remember like memorable Charlotte Hornets in the past and, uh, like Kendall Baron Gill, da- baby. It was in a uh, like Baron Davis, wasn't he a Charlotte Hornet? Yeah, that uh, he was a Charlotte Hornet. But like, if we're talking like real Hornets, like even beyond like, uh, I mean that even beyond like Larry Johnson, like George Shin was like a villain because he traded Alonzo Mourning. But like otherwise, That's right. we got like Muggsy Bogues. I mean, I've already mentioned Kelly Trapuca. Got Larry, Larry Johnson. Larry John, of course, Grandma Ma. We got. Kenny Gaddison, Del Curry, father of Del Steph Curry. Uh, you know, we got we. There was a little bit of t- Hersey Hawkins back in the day. I th- oh, Hersey Hawkins, Glenn Rice. He was a, yeah, he was of, a Hornet. of course, yeah. So uh, maybe you know, we got like a couple weeks in the calendar where there's like maybe not a lot popping. We're just gonna like get like a, a mailbag letter. It's like okay, quick, 1996. Uh, you know, New York Knicks. Let's go remember some guys. <laughs> so I think we, I think we made our thirty-minute guarantee. We're really close <laughs> with delivering the meats. Yeah. I mean, I thought we might get derailed because again we we start just listing random Charlotte Hornets for whatever reason. Uh, this is the Charlotte Hornets and uh, Ugly Kid Joe episode. Uh, but we're to the meat of the of, of our episode, and we're t- we're doing our spring preview for 2023, uh, and looking at well, we got three categories: we have most anticipated album, most anticipated tour, and most anticipated trend slash discourse, mm-hmm. which is my favorite category. Um, so we got a lot of albums coming out. Well, actually, not a lot of albums. We were just saying before we started recording that. The release schedule looks like a little thin in terms of like big ticket records. I mean, I guess we have like the Boy Genius record. That's probably going to be the biggest one. Yes. In, in terms of indie music, that comes out March 31st. You got a new national album coming out in April. You have M83, mm-hmm. which is out in a few weeks. Uh, there's the Wednesday record that we've talked a lot about on this show that's already had some profiles written about it out there uh so there's some big ticket records there but like beyond that i don't know like like what's out there like what are you anticipating the most yeah we're not going to cover the the heavy hitters that you mentioned you know we need some material for future episodes but um i mean when i'm thinking about like the most anticipated album it's got to be one that i haven't actually heard yet but i know exists and so look i mean we just spent like how many minutes remembering uh old charlotte hornets like we're a big of the remember some guys lifestyle and so you know like the the bands that like make you remember like what it was like to really be in the trenches at that time like anyone can remember like animal collective or dirty projectors from 2009 
the first Here We Go Magic album. That's where the gold is. So I get the sense that right now we are in a kind of a golden era for the remembering some guys and gals of like the Mitski, Phoebe Bridgers, Japanese Breakfast era. And I don't think that there's an album that's like really consolidated all the threads of the current time more so than this artist releasing their self-titled debut. Their name is Blonde Shell. So you may you may have like heard bits and pieces about this artist uh, so far. And again, I've listened the songs I've heard. They're fine. They're they're good enough. Um, but it makes me think of like this concept I heard about when uh, the the most recent uh, Scooby Doo reboot came out that like focused on Velma. It, it, it introduced me to this concept of what was called sacrificial trash, which is art that like really doubles down on a lot of like zoomer or like tiktok adjacent type uh lingo or like mannerisms that just ends up pissing everyone off which in turn makes it discussed even more this happens i think more in tv and music or movies because you know there's less degrees there's more degrees of separation between the uh billionaires putting it on and like us consuming it but this 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 artist it when I think about what it's like to listen, like listen to indie music in 2023, like first off, the music sounds like the last Soccer Mommy album, or like a little bit of Phoebe Bridgers with that like rise singer songwriter thing, or there's some 90s alt rock. Um, this artist also, like, you also got to talk constantly about like trauma and therapy and amplify normal people setbacks into, you know, some life defining narrative for your press release. Um, you have to kind of be in with like some credulous writers. Like I think a lot of newer music writers also kind of want to do PR, like either like low key or high key. And so I remember reading a Rolling Stone profile about this artist that basically said they showed they were like serious about music by like enrolling in USC's pop program. Also, there's like a kind of a nepo. It's like you go to US, like the University of Southern California and Uh, It's sort of like, I guess, the Clive Music uh, School of Music Business that exists at NYU or like, it's it's like you go to a expensive, well, like tier one school to like learn about the music business or about songwriting. And so also there's like, we've kind of hinted at like the Nepo baby wave, like just this past week, there was a big pop album coming out from like the daughter of uh, J.J. Abrams. Um, this, this artist comes from like an extremely wealthy family. Like I think the, her father owns like a vape company or something like that. And, (laughs) and, and here, and some of the lyrics are just like, um, you know, I'm going to read these so I don't mess them up. It, um, on the internet, always on the internet, laughing with your hair down when I asked you what a simp meant. It wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't hurt the world. Look what you did. You'll make a killer of this Jewish girl. Now, look, man, I I understand what that lyric is doing, though. But, like, you know, I've seen, you know, Casino. You know, I've seen Bugsy. There's some hitters in our our lineage. But four years ago, uh, she was a different artist, like, called Bomb. Like, it's a play on her last name. And I, I found an article that said... Bomb is the queer Jewish princess of dark pop, which is like the most 2019 headline you could possibly imagine. Right. Uh, that artist had a song called Fuck Boy. I'm just, ex- I'm, I'm like, the music is fine. Like, I just want to say that. And like, if people connect to it, so be it. This music is not for me. But like, as far, 
you know, the so this da- is like the candle box of PB Bridgers, <laughs> basically. We've reached that because, like, I feel like we've talked about this before. Where yeah. I wonder at what point, like, what is the tipping point for this wave of like, you know, like you said, like rye female singer songwriters? Because like we are in this period now, going back to like probably like eighteen or so, twenty eighteen, where that is a big part of what indie music is. Like those are the biggest stars. They're the ones who get the most, uh, mm. you know, hype. Uh, and, and it does feel like a wave and like all waves crash at some point. And I, I just feel like that sort of Phoebe Bridgers model, soccer mommy model, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many iterations of that now. And, and I feel like there's been other records this year that have like tried to be in that lane that didn't really work. Like there's that artist, uh, Samia? Oh, yeah. Yes. Who's the daughter of... Uh, the Dan Band? Is uh, that the Dan Band one? The Dan Band? Yeah. The, her fa- Isn't her father like one of the dude from the Dan Band? Like, you know, the guy from, uh, what's it, like Wedding Crashers? No, her, her, her mom is uh, uh, Kathy Najimy. Okay. The, who's like an actress. <laughs> like I, I don't know if that counts as a Nepo baby because I don't know like how much name recognition Kathy Najimy has. <laughs> no, but, but her, her dad like is the Dan Band guy. Yes. Okay, so, you know, I feel like that's also in that lane where you feel like, okay, we, we are getting that to the candle box era yeah. of, of maybe this, uh, you know, archetype yeah, you like indie music. These are like the reviews I read sometimes, and it's like, they'll like quote the lyrics, and like it just reminds me in a way of like when I used to review Red Chili Peppers albums that you can make fun of Anthony Kiedis just by quoting him directly. And you just sort of like wonder, it's like, are you trying, like, are you saying these are good or are you saying these are like bad lyrics? Like, I, it's just like, at a, maybe it's the fact that like I work in the mental health field that like, it just seems a bit odd for people to like, I don't know, like elevate therapy and like, you know, like diagnoses so much. But again, maybe this is just, maybe we were just like going irrevocably forward in that direction and there's no going back or maybe like or maybe just no i think i i think we're gonna look back on this period as this was something that was totally overemphasized right you know it's gonna be one of the cliches i think of this era Mm -hmm. and i think one reason why that gets leaned on sometimes is that you want to make the artist have significance beyond just making a great record. Yeah. So that's a way to make them feel like they're reflecting something larger about the world. That mm-hmm. you know they're expressing the trauma that we all feel in this late stage capitalist <laughs> world or whatever bullshit you want to write. Right. So I think that's why. But it, there's going to be something else, you know, because in the late 2010s it was it was Trump, and now this is like the new Trump, and then. <laughs> Like if Ron DeSantis is elected, then maybe Ron DeSantis will be the new like I'm reacting to the DeSantis administration, you know, whatever it is. Um, before I say my most anticipated record, because it's sort of in the same lane as yours, where huh. I'm not actually looking forward to it. I'm more <laughs> just kind of curious to see how it plays out. But before we get to that, I just want to mention another couple records that I think people in our audience might care about that are coming up in the next. Uh, a few months. You have a Manchester Orchestra EP that drops March 10th. You have a new Hold Steady album, March 31st. 
That'll be a fun thing for us to argue about again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The new Pornographers, March 31st, yeah. another legacy band. So there's some other records out there. But an album I'm really curious to hear is the new album from 100 Gex, mm. uh, which comes out March 17th. And that's and finally is, coming out, right? Like, there were... Yeah, this... Okay. I feel... Yeah, I mean, presumably. I mean, I don't know, maybe... The, the, I, I don't know why albums would be laid you know, if it falls off the back of a truck or something and <laughs> you can't put it out anymore. Uh, but it's their uh, it's their second proper album uh, coming after their their debut that came out in 2019. This is a duo from from St. Louis. They're associated with the hyper pop genre, probably the most famous group uh, to be affiliated with that, and. Uh, this is another example of a group that was extremely buzzy when that first record came out. And a lot of people were writing about them in terms of, you know, how this was going to change music, you know, whether this is going to be like a bellwether for, you know, other groups of this, of this ilk to, to rise to prominence and all that stuff. And it's always interesting when you have a group like that, that is so of a moment and then you and then you revisit them like three years later or four years later when that moment maybe has passed. And like, are they bigger than that moment or are they going to be stuck in that moment? And that's a fascinating uh, dynamic mm-hmm. for me. Like, I, I love seeing how things age and, and are you able to kind of move on to something else if you are so definitional of a particular time and place. And... You know, they, they put out a single a few weeks ago. I don't know if you heard this song. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was like, this sounds a lot like Beverly Hills. <laughs> like the Weezer song. Like, it, it sounds enough like that song where I feel like it's a deliberate homage to that. And, you know, part of what 100 Gex is known for is taking sounds of the past, particularly sounds that maybe are now looked at as maybe being corny or passe and turning it on its head, you know, twisting it a little bit in sort of an unusual way where it feels new. And I was wondering like, okay, are we doing this now to 2005 Weezer songs? Like if we reached that point and is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I think that song is kind of shitty. I don't know how you feel about it. <laughs> You can't be kind of shitty. You got to be like full blown <laughs> shitty. Well, it's it's full blown shitty. I mean, it 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 didn't turn Beverly Hills on its head. It just replicated Beverly Hills. So mm. it replicated a piece of shit. So when you replicate a piece of shit, you get shit. So that's what that <laughs> song is. Uh, what what do you think about Hundred Gex? I mean, have you have you heard that song? Like, yeah. Did did, did you like it? I mean, it's it. it, it We've talked about this, I think, on previous episodes, how with this group, like, the goal, the goalposts always move, like, just dependent, like, there, this, this group, if nothing else, just undermines the, um, belief that music can be judged objectively, because, like, if you're, like, bought into what this group does, then everything they do is, like, a subversion or, like, cheeky homage and, would I listen to this album voluntarily? Absolutely not. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I want this album to come out. And the reason I'm like, is this album finally coming out is because it's been teased for so very long. And I feel like the whole Gex discourse is just like this boil that needs to be lanced. Like, we just kind of need to, like, stop talking around the music and just, I'm just 
very, very curious to see like how this music is engaged with, because I think one of the themes of, you know, our entire indie cast series that with music writing, you can pretty much say whatever the fuck you want about anything. If like you want to take a certain angle and, uh, I don't like, I'm just wondering if people are like maybe ready to turn on this group or, you know, they see what hyper pop has evolved into and, you know, they're kind of like Pearl Jam being criticized for, you know, a lot of shitty music they really don't have much to do with. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's, it, I think it's just something that kind of just needs to happen so we can move on. Sort of like the Blonde yeah. Show album. Yeah, there's like a lot of older people. And by older, I mean like older than 25 that <laughs> are probably scared to knock a group like this because it's like, well... It's the it's the whole thing about like am I going to be the person who doesn't get the thing that ends up being hugely influential and I think we're a little removed now from their initial moment to see like well maybe it wasn't quite the sea change that it was perceived to be at the time I could be completely wrong though about that I don't know maybe I'm one of those people who's scared to be wrong I just know that if you're going to be subverting Beverly Hills I don't know if that is a sign that you've run out of ideas or that you're such a genius that I'm going to be blown away when I hear it in 10 years. Uh, at any rate, let's get to our next topic. Right. Most anticipated tour. Um, did you see that announcement this week about the uh, Weezer tour? The Indie Rock Road Trip <laughs> tour? How could I miss it? I love the fact that like this... This is like so Weezer to, you know, put together like a, this is a great fucking tour. Um, I, yeah, I mean, this is, this is technically a summer tour, I should say. It starts in June. Ends so, in San Diego in September. So I'm looking so forward to seeing that. The lineup here, you got Weezer as the headliner, Modest Mouse, Future Islands, Spoon, hmm. Mama, Joyce Manor, and White Reaper. So you have a combination of Major label alt-rock band, Weezer. Mm -hmm. The middle line, all indie bands, or at least were originated as... Yeah, yeah, they were at some point. And then the bottom line are like sort of... Well, Joyce Manor has been around for a while. but And White Waper kind of has too. But, you know, they're like the young... They're the young guns here on the tour. Uh, And it just made me think about how like last year... One of the big things people talked about was how the tour business is broken. When I think in reality, what happened was is that there was just way more supply than demand. You know, all these bands were getting back on the road, uh, and there's only so many shows you can see. And it is fascinating to me that you have this tour where you, what is it, seven bands on this tour? I mean, it seems like a, a direct reaction to that. Hmm. It's like, okay, why compete against each other? You know, we're just going to be like a traveling festival uh, where it's likely that, like, if you, you, you just think about like indie rock fans in general, you probably like at least two of these bands. Yeah. So you're just going to be grabbing all these people. I just wonder, like, is this the future? I I feel like we're going to be getting a lot of packages like this 
uh, from here on out. We saw like with the there's like the boy genius Claro Dijon Barty Strange tour and like the other one happening with like L what's it like LCD sound system and like uh, Toro y Moi or something like that. Like the, those two show those two package tours are coming around. Which uh, oh yeah, it's like Jamie X Jamie XX. I almost said uh, Charlie XX, but um, yeah, I, I just kind of want to see this tour because I just want to kind of read the body language of like spoon and like modest mouse like what do isaac brock and Britt daniel really think of weezer because like i know that like joyce manor fucking loves weezer i'm sure white reaper does as well um but like i would just love to hear like isaac brock you know after having just played um you know trailer trash like hey who's who's excited for weezer <laughs> i know i know i i, I would expect Brock and Britt Daniel to be the two non-Weezer fans on this bill. But they also know, well, you know, we're bands in our 40s. I think Britt, is Britt Daniel in his 50s now? Uh, he's, I, I, he's probably I, around there. I would imagine I, so. I mean, he looks amazing. 51. He's 51. Yeah. I mean, Spoon, Spoon, they did a tour with Interpol right. last year. Mm-hmm. So they've really, you know, they were like an early adopter to this packaging bands together that maybe 10 years ago you'd be like why are they together right and now it's just like well we're all like older bands that have hung around and the same kind of person probably likes us so why wouldn't we tour you know like like isaac brock you know at some point is a pragmatist and he's like can i really pretend that it's just like hardcore indie people that care about me no it's it's like we're 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 two 90s bands at this point you know so why not tour together yeah uh, I, i'm with it it's just i just love how like weezer in, in their infinite wisdom called it the indie road trip <laughs> it's like it's like generic it's like so generic and anodyne but like still can manage to piss people off like were people, like was there an uprising over that this I, week? People- it's kind of hard to be mad at Weezer. It's just like uh it's like when you hear like Smashing Pumpkins putting out a triple album. It's like, yeah, yeah, this is kind of dumb, but like this is just what they do. Like you have to kind of be very uh you know, you have to you have to be very measured with your outrage. But uh like I I, I don't know how anyone could be possibly like legitimately offended, but it's just like, oh man, like it they had to call it the indie road trip as if any of these bands are really indie and as if like any of them are going to be hanging out like at the same tour van. Like I just, I, like I really just wish we could get like a round table with like Weezer or with like Rivers Cuomo and Britt Daniel and like Isaac Brock just chopping it up about, uh, you know, being lifers in this game. Well, and like, I've never interviewed Rivers Cuomo. I've interviewed Isaac Brock. Okay, so I've interviewed Isaac Brock a bunch of times, and I really enjoyed it because he's a, a pretty funny guy. But he has a very unique energy to him. <laughs> and Rivers Cuomo, from what I can see in the interviews I've watched, I mean, he also has very unique energy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like those guys backstage, you know, grilling some hot dogs before going out. You know, that should be like the you know, $10,000 VIP package. You just get to like stare at those two guys trying to have a conversation in the green room. <laughs> yeah. Rivers definitely had a strange energy as well. I interviewed him um, back in 13 or 14. And then I got invited to like watch a live 
performance of a Midsummer's Night and like his family was there. It was like he did this thing called Nerd Night where he like bought a bunch of tickets for like Weezer fans and like they'll go watch like a live rendering of a play or like go to the zoo. Like just incredibly unique guy. Very, very earnest though. You can't. Yeah, I can see that. Well, let's get to our last category, most anticipated trend slash discourse. And we've already kind of touched on some possible trends, you know, that when we were talking about, like, is this a tipping point for, like, the singer-songwriter wave? Is, like, hyperpop going to implode this year? Uh, Are there any other trends slash discourses that you're interested to see unfold in the next few months? Well, like with the hardcore discussion, this one's kind of uh, selfish. And this one ties into the tour one as well. Um, so I believe like earlier this year, the Touche Amore did some anniversary shows. One of which was for is survived by, which was kind of like their critical breakthrough in 2013. Uh, in the next couple of months, there's going to be um, 10th anniversary shows for the world is a beautiful place. Citizen, uh super heaven. So, you know, I'm not going to be able to go to most of those shows. All of them are in LA, but what we're kind of getting a sense of here is that we are in like the 10 year anniversary of not like the actual emo revival, but like, you know, when it started to get covered by like places I write for. And I'm just really interested to see how that's going to be handled because, you know, like I, I'm like wondering what the shows are going to be like, like there, there's a wide variety of possibilities for the world is like, is it going to be kind of sad? Is it going to be like really cathartic and awesome? And, you know, I'm look, I could write all these like 10 year pieces if I wanted to, but like, I'm dying to know what someone who was like 15 when that balance and composure album came out, like what they think, you know, Will we get like a reappraisal of uh, Little Big League, which was like the band Michelle Zahner was in before Japanese Breakfast? Will there be a Cash Crash of Rhinos reunion? Um, I mean, I I just am really, really, really interested in hearing just somebody younger like talking about this music, um, and whether it's like super important to them or whether it's like, yeah, I listened to that in 2013, and now I'm listening to like jazz or whatever. So. Um, again, like this just gets more into like actual discourse than anything else. But, um, yeah, like how are we going to remember that Tumblr time? And also like whether there's going to be like a, you know, some self-awareness of like, Hey, you know, whatever you think about like 2023 at this moment in 10 years, it might look a little silly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, just like at the broader view of 2013, because, you know, we've, we've talked about that year many times on this show as being really the beginning of the 2010s. Like that was a big turning point and you had debut records from Haim, Mm. Lord, the 1975, uh, churches, churches. It was a big year for that. You know, like the the vampire weekend record, Modern Vampires of the city came out that year. There's a lot of big records that came out in 2013. And it's just interesting. I know people sometimes roll their eyes at anniversary pieces. (laughs) I actually think it's kind of fun to go back and revisit albums that were really momentous at the time. And just taking stock of like, how does this feel now? You know, and there's a lot of big records from 2013 that I think will be fun to do that with. Um, the other trend, and this is like a bigger trend more than just like the spring of 2023. I mean, this is like looking out into the future, but 
you know, artificial intelligence is something that has really become a big part of like just the tech sector in general. And I read a really interesting blog post recently uh, written by this writer, Jamie Brooks, who's talking about how AI music has been flooding streaming platforms and how it's diluting the share of money that indie labels are able to get from streaming platforms. That basically, it's it's this cheap way to make money. You can make a sound-alike song that can get like on a on a sleep playlist or a classical music playlist. And it just makes it that much harder for indie artists who, for the most part, are not listened to at all on streaming platforms. I mean, if you look at the numbers, a very small number of artists generate the majority of the traffic on those platforms. Uh, it's all about, you know, the Bad Bunnies, the Weekends, the Taylor Swifts, people mm-hmm. like that. So this AI music element, I mean... The, what the blog post essentially argues is that this will be a thing that could bring about the end of recorded music (laughs) because it's just going to make it that much harder for people to make records and to make any kind of money from it. And I, I'm very fascinated by that. I think just artificial intelligence in general, which, you know, you're seeing that pop up Mm. in a lot of different places. It's terrifying to me. I don't know why we're, messing with this stuff mm-hmm. haven't we seen enough dystopian science fiction films to know that this is how the robots destroy us you know i don't <laughs> know it's very scary to me uh and this is a small part of it but i think yeah just that ai music and how that's developing is very fascinating yeah i i've yet to read um i have yet to read uh that that Substack. i mean Jamie Brooks, uh, they put out a lot of interesting music. They're they're a very interesting thinker, but it seems like that this one. It, I mean, when I'm just confronted <laughs> with like AI or just like what's happening to the music industry, yeah, I feel in some ways a little bit like hopeless. Like what? Like the the parachute never goes back in. You know, it's like this is just where things are going to be going and. You know, I, I don't, you know, maybe I just got to get back into cassette owning or like buying CDs or whatever. It just, I don't know. It just kind of makes me happy that like, you know, my, <laughs> my, uh, my, my, my lifestyle and like my, you know, bills get paid for the most part with something other than music. But then again, like there's going to be like, you know, there's supposed like AI therapists as well. So uh, I think this kind of uh, gets into er- this is like real like low like hovering dread in all ways. So this is maybe why I should listen to hardcore. Yeah, this is Terminator Two coming to life. Except not. Uh, except there's not like a kick-ass soundtrack like Guns N' Roses. You could be mine. Yeah, or it'll, it'll be AI generated. I do like the idea though that you implied that listening to CDs and cassettes can prevent dystopia. <laughs> I could not agree more. <laughs> that's like the Billy Idol album, Cyberpunk. That's uh, I'm, I'm throwing like that. I think I listen. I think I remember seeing uh, "Shock to the System" that video on the same blocks of MTV where I would see "Neighbor." Uh, that was like Billy Idol's attempt to get into like the 1993 sort of AI world. It's a fascinating piece of junk. See, you're trying to suck me into a conversation about Billy Idol, Cyberpunk. <laughs> It's not going to work. I have to practice some restraint.
We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So I mentioned this band earlier. Uh, it's this uh, black power violence band from L.A. called Zulu. Their debut album, A New Tomorrow, comes out on Friday. And I, I just kind of hope that some people are fooled by like the Putamayo type cover art this thing has because um it makes me think of like you know for a number of valid reasons the soul glow album from last year it deal, you know it's an all-black band they deal with a lot of the same sort of politics but this one is if you cut it's like more condensed and more explosive like what you'll hear is like 90 second hardcore songs but also like piano pieces and spoken word and like really recognizable samples, like 30 seconds long of like old soul songs. Uh, Some of the song titles reference Wu-Tang and the video they made for where I'm from was like a, um, like a recreation of the scenario video, uh, which is always fun. So I'm very interested to see how this one uh, is received. Like this is the sort of hardcore album that like, it's not particularly accessible in so many ways, but it's super duper interesting. So I hope people, uh, I hope people catch on to this one. So we joked in our episode last week that we've talked more about the nineties alt rock band live than we've talked about live or L I V period E. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) the, The E is silent. Ah, got it. I, I looked this up to make sure. Anyway, L-I-V period E, pronounced Liv, who uh, put out one of the most acclaimed albums of early 2023. It's called Girl in the Half Pearl. I am now going to rectify this injustice by actually talking about this album because I like it quite a bit. And it's an interesting uh, situation because we were talking earlier about how you know, sometimes the way that albums are talked about, it can turn you off preemptively because it leans a little too hard on overused tropes. Yeah. And the trauma thing has been a big trope in how artists are written about. And that's been an element of how this record has been discussed. It, like a lot of the coverage I've seen has either talked about like, you know, her overcoming trauma or how cool she is, you know, sort of the cult of personality uh, situation and not as much about the music. And I have to say, like, I, I dove into this album this week and I really enjoy it. And it's definitely one of the most adventurous records that I've heard in a while. And, you know, it's it's been described as like avant R&B. Like I've heard that descriptor thrown around a lot in connection to this album, which I guess is sort of like an avant-garde R&B type sound but I find that it's actually much broader than that and it's much more difficult to categorize like there's elements of psychedelia electronic music industrial music even like some goth elements and like when I wrote about the record in my monthly roundup column of of my favorite albums of of February 2023 I I was I ended up sort of leaning on like word salad (laughs) comparisons uh, to describe this record, and the one that makes the most sense to me is like this is like a Sade album if it was produced by Trent Reznor. Like it has that vibe to me, where there's a sultry aspect to it, but there's also like a kind of a hard edge spaciness to it as well. And uh, I don't know, it's just like a great kind of art electronic record. And I find that I take something different from it each time I listen to it. So. Really good record, and again, let this be a lesson that don't <laughs> let the uh, you know the way a record is talked about take you away from actually experiencing it yourself. Because you might find that the way it's described doesn't quite hit you the way that maybe it 
hits music critics. So this is an album, again, definitely want to check it out. One of my favorite albums of early 2023. I'm going to go with the consensus on this one. Live girl and a half pearl yeah i like this record too and you know you have to understand that like sometimes writers have very different aims than listeners it's like how can i justify this thousand word count here and you know that's where you start like getting into you know the stuff that uh like you know we've talked about kind of annoys us so you know what maybe maybe come year end you know the the we're gonna talk about like how the blonde shell album actually was quite good and it was like screwed over by its uh you know, by its narrative, maybe that's what's going to happen. So, contemporary we'll investigation. Out. Let's uh, we're we're getting past that in 2023. That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 